Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Adrian Martin takes us back to the early 1960s and tells us about the Profumo affair. We learn about the varied cast of key players and how it changed both the political scene and the wider public view of the ruling classes. It is a government health warning, really. It's a a lively cocktail of drugs, sex, class, Czech journalism and the criminal underclass. The establishment was rocked and the public lapped it all up. The stress of the whole business exhausted Macmillan and he ended up resigning. The 1964 defeat of the Tories in the election then might well not have happened had it not been for the Fumo affair and the fact that Macmillan had resigned. Let's look, first of all, at the principal characters. Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Now, Macmillan was the grandson of a Scottish crofter and part of the Macmillan Publishing Group. He had a tough First World War, being injured five times. He was elected MP for Stockton-on-Tees in 1924 and uh, had a genuine distress for the unemployment of the times. He and other Tory MPs with similar views were known as the Tory Democrats. The basis of that is you give blankets to the poor as long as they don't ask for eiderdowns. He opposed appeasement, achieved office under Churchill, but by post-war... He was felt he was getting a bit old to go all that far. But due to his patrician ways, he was ambitious. The extent of his ambition is illustrated by his personal life. In 1920, he had married Lady Dorothy Cavendish. The marriage deteriorated after 1926. And in 1928, she had met Robert Boothby, the dashing young Tory MP. Boothby, in his youth, enjoyed the company of both ladies and young men. He saw the danger of the latter and veered away. The affair with Lady Macmillan was consummated, and Macmillan would not countenance a divorce because it would harm his chance of high office. She was headstrong, shameless, and wanted her way. Now, Macmillan was in a very difficult position. He was distraught and he sought the help of Nancy Astor, who you will recall was the first female member of Parliament. So what were they going to do? She brokered a deal whereby the marriage continued and allowed her relationship with Robert Boothby to continue. Understandably, Macmillan was humiliated and his colleagues in Parliament knew he was Boothby's cuckold. And this fueled his ambition to get the prize he'd given so much up for. So what I'm saying is, 
he had stuck with this unhappy marriage because it was going to destroy his chance of high office. So he was pretty determined. Now, Millen, despite his patrician and gentlemanly ways, was a cunning politician. Churchill had been prime minister and then Eden had taken over. And Macmillan, realising that Eden's time was coming to an end, announced that he was retiring from the Commons fairly soon. He'd already discovered from Eden's doctors that his health would mean that he was going to retire soon. Now, the natural heir was, of course, Rab Butler. And he thought once Macmillan had announced that he was not going to stand, that the way was open to him. However, having made his announcement, Macmillan quietly built up a power base, his leadership bid. Butler's problem was partly that he had been in favour of appeasement, but it was somewhat of a surprise that Macmillan took over instead of Butler. In January 1957, Macmillan was Prime Minister. On the day he was appointed Prime Minister, Macmillan took Edward Heath to the Turf Club. He entered finding a member reading the Evening Standard, He looked up and saw Macmillan and asked, any good shooting recently? Only when Macmillan had left the room for supper, there were congratulations given. Macmillan chose a cabinet of men not likely to dazzle, but he won the 1959 election because the Tories were a more convincing party as a party of liberty and progress. Labour was seen as cheese-pairing, and this may sound strange, conservative. The Tories were bolder. The Tories had since 1951 deregulated, rationing had gone, and the standard of living had improved. The legacy of the war was slowly being shed and change was in the air. It was during the election campaign that Macmillan was alleged to have said, you've never had it so good, in answer to a youngster continually heckling him. So having won in 59, by the time the next election was approaching, the Tories had begun to look a little vulnerable. They'd been in power for 10 years and the electorate were perhaps ready for a change. The Profumo affair was to give the press and political opponents ammunition to knock the Tories and facilitate that change. So that's Macmillan. Now we move on to Jack Profumo, the war minister. He was the fifth baron of the kingdom of Sicily. His family had settled in England and in 1877 set up the Provident Life Association. He was thus extremely wealthy and attended Harrow School. Here he learned to ape the English tradition of good behaviour while quietly bent on enjoying himself in his own way. He was not a shame-faced boy. Publicly, he was deferent to authority, but inwardly indifferent to the school's moral shams. He was educated at Oxford. His son, David, described him in early manhood as part daredevil, part lounge lizard. In March 1940, he was elected MP for Kettering. His first vote was to vote against Chamberlain for not supporting the Norwegians sufficiently. Macmillan voted similarly and was impressed by Profumo. He fought in Tunis and in Sicily, but lost his seat in the Labour landslide of 1945. He met his wife-to-be, Valerie Hobson, 
at a ball at the Albert Hall in 1947. Now, I'm sure many of you are great fans of the film Kind Hearts and Coronets, one of the great Ealing comedies. And she was the actress in Kind Hearts and Coronets. She'd been previously married. She liked men who chased women and went for perfumo. However, when she met him, she decided not to have her first foray into adultery, but went off with Whitney Strait, a racing driver. She then switched her attention to Profumo. He found the subterfuge and intrigues of the relationships intensified the sex. She got pregnant by Profumo and had what was in those days called a DNC. The affair stopped when Perfumo won his seat at Stratford-on-Avon in 1950. She then got pregnant by her husband and had a son. Then they agreed to a divorce, not before she'd had a, an affair with a Marquis of Londonderry. So she was a lady who got around. She was starring in The King and I when she married Perfumo. He said, if you'll marry me, you give up work. In 1959, he got a ministerial post and in 1950 became Secretary of State for War. So Profumo was a bit of a ladies' man and Valerie Profumo realised this. She resented his assumption that all pretty women, or preferably girls, were fair game. She, she complained to him, the way you kiss women you hardly know goodbye was another irritation. So was the tailoring of his trousers. Surely there must be some other way of concealing your, well, we won't go on there. He seldom stopped scooping the room, she protested, even when they were dancing together. So you can see the sort of, must be the Italian blood in him, I think. Now we move on to Lord Astor. In 1890, William Waldorf Astor settled in England. In 1893, he bought Cliveden from the Duke of Westminster and then proceeded to have a row with him over the visitor's book. And he got a bad press for that. So he decided that he would try and influence the press by buying a newspaper. He fell out with the Prince of Wales and called Mrs. Keppel a public strumpet. He was better at money than tact. His son, Waldorf, was given Cliveden and he married Nancy Astor, the first woman MP. She had five children, the eldest of which was William, Bill he was known as. His mother resented him because the son of her first marriage was not going to share the spoils. His time at Eton was unhappy. When he got to Oxford, life began to get better. He had a strong sense of duty and was thoroughly anglicised. He worked for the League of Nations, went to China, where he had an affair with a Soviet refugee. But he had a lifelong compassion for displaced persons. He had a spell in Parliament, but his parliamentary ambitions were ended in 1952, when he inherited his father's title. Before this, his father had given Clifton to the National Trust and gave shares in the Observer to his younger brother and indicated the younger brother was to be the editor. This was a double blow to Lord Astor. He voted for the abolition of the death penalty and a relaxation of the laws against homosexuality. 
He threw himself into charitable work and was vehemently anti-communist. In 1945, he married. His wife had three miscarriages, then a son. She suffered terribly from postnatal depression. And in the midst of this, she had an affair. And by 1953, they were divorced, but remained good friends. His next marriage lasted a short time. She was the goddaughter of Harold Macmillan and a niece of Lady Macmillan. Lonely, he threw parties at Cliver. He needed to be liked. He was one third playboy, one third idealist and one third magnet. His final marriage was to Bronwyn Pugh, a statuesque ex-model whom he met at St. Moritz. They married in October 1960. They had Clifton. They liked having parties there. And a frequent visitor to the house was our next character, Stephen Ward, whom had met Astor in 1949. And Ward was an osteopath and treated Astor for his back problems. They became friends. There's a suggestion that Ward helped with the negotiations over Astor's failing second marriage. Because of this friendship, Astor let him lease Spring Cottage on the banks of the Thames on the Clifton estate. Stephen Ward. I, I expect some of you may have seen the television adaptation of the trial of Stephen Ward. It, it was quite a good portrayal of, of the situation, I thought. Stephen Ward was the son of a clergyman. He travelled a bit and he studied osteopathy at Kirksville, Missouri. The trouble with that qualification that it only enabled him to practice as a doctor in the USA, but not in England. He resented this. In the war, he was in the Army Medical Corps, but he had to serve as a stretcher bearer. He couldn't practice the way he wanted to. In 1947, he set up as an osteopath and soon built up a successful practice to the rich, influential and successful. He was charming, carefree and indiscreet. He undoubtedly likes mixing with the right people. He married in 1949, but that marriage only lasted six weeks. She was a bit too well educated. He preferred girl spotting in Oxford Street or coffee bars and picking up slim-hipped, improvident gaming types, the so-called alley cats. He craved company, hated being lonely. He loved name dropping and was really a licentious Walter Mitty. The best summary of Ward was published in David Astor's Observer a few days after Ward's trial for living on immoral earnings in 1963. He was a compulsive exhibitionist who depended upon audiences to provide him with stimulus and confidence. He was massively indiscreet and loved showing off right up to the end. He liked to exercise his power over girls and it may have been this as much as sexual desire that impelled him. But he was a good osteopath, and he liked to regard himself as a confidant to the, the well-to-do. I think he treated the, the Duke of Edinburgh, so uh, amongst others, so he obviously moved in certain circles. He shared his flats with girls, but he didn't expect them to sleep with him. Christine Keeler, who we'll be coming to later, was to live with him in Notting Hill. 
1953 to 1954, he acquired an enemy in John Lewis, who was a licentious ex-Labour MP in a hurry to make a million. He was having marital troubles and his wife sought sanctuary ward one night. Lewis cited Ward in his divorce proceedings and got nowhere. He reported Ward to the Inland Revenue. He told the Daily Express he was running a Mayfair call racket and made anonymous calls to Marylebone Police Station, saying he was procuring young girls for his patients. The police investigated all these claims and found absolutely no truth in the allegations, but the allegations lay on file. He was also a talented artist and enjoyed sketching his patients. He sketched the Princess Margaret, the Duke of Edinburgh, and Archbishop Macarios, quite a varied selection of people. In 1961, Ward decided that he wanted to sketch the Politburo, and he wanted to get a, a visa to go and do that. And in order to do this, he sought the help of Sir Colin Coote, who was the editor of the Daily Telegraph. And Sir Colin Coote introduced Ward to our next character, Eugene Ivanov, the naval attaché to the Soviet embassy. Well, I always wonder whether naval attaches know anything about ships. And so we now move on to the question of spies. This was the era of the Cold War. Macmillan had had to deal with the Burgess-McLean case when Foreign Secretary. The fact that these public schoolboys made the situation doubly embarrassing for the tourists. Recruited into the civil service by their friends rather than on merit, journalists made much capital of this. Sex, class and official secretary were connected to booze. In 1960, Macmillan suffered the first great reverse of his premiership when there was a Paris summit following the shooting down of an American spy plane. He felt humiliated by Khrushchev and de Gaulle, but you'll be pleased to know that Macmillan sought solace in Dombey and Son. In 1962, there was another spy case. This was the Vassal spy case. This had homosexual themes, and two journalists who were exposing the story were sent to prison for refusing to disclose sources about Vassal buying women's clothes and attending sex parties. Everybody knew the stories were lies, but the press sought revenge. They were sent to prison, so the press were very upset at the Tories for their mates being sent to prison. The pressure was gradually mounting for Macmillan and the meeting of Ivanov and Ward, another agreement to the tale. Now, you'll be surprised to know that Fleet Street was also playing its part. And my next section I've called Hacks. And it's true to say that the Profumo affair was made more in Fleet Street than in Wimpole, Mews or Clifton. It was incited, published and exploited by journalists and their newspapers for a variety of reasons. Newspaper circulation was beginning to fall, not helped by the arrival of ITV in 1955. 
checkbook journalism had started. The news of the world had paid the defense costs of John Hay, the acid bath murderer, and newspapers knew that sex sold papers. Now we come to a sort of tale of revenge. In 1931, Nancy Astor's son by her first husband, Bobby Shaw, had been sentenced to five months in prison for homosexuality. The family wanted it hushed up and asked Nancy Astor, asked a favour of Lord Beaverbrook to keep it out of the press. He did this and he used his influence to keep the story out of the press. Nancy Astor was not really grateful. And in 1949, the Observer described Beaverbrook, and I use the expression of the time, as a gollywog itching with vitality, whose editorial policies were baby political talk. Beaverbrook was not amused and thought the Astors sanctimonious and ungrateful for him for arranging to keep the story out of the press. He was out for revenge. The Mirror Group was a playing a political game. The Cecil King was a great ibinance, and Hugh Cudlip, its features editor. Even in 1939, an editorial headed The New Man Red. It, it lauded its male readers with a rhetoric which was to be revived and loudened during the Macmillan years. There is no smug complacency about the new man of the new Britain. He's awake, virile, courageous, eager to defend his hard-won freedom, resolved at all costs to remain supreme. The mind of the new man is no longer clogged with worn-out doctrines and moral shams. Back in 1939, there was a feature depicting Mayfair in terms that divided dive from inverted snobbery to salicicity. Shiny limousines glide through the quiet streets. Disdainful duchies took pompous Pekingese on shopping exhibitions. Ducal mansions looked down their noses at 10,000 pound cottages. Butlers buttle, head waiters pocket five pound tips and smart page boys scurry across the roads laden with the merchandise of Hartnell and Molyneux. However, the back streets behind the skyscraper hotels and blocks of luxury flats were honeycombed with flatlets kept by ladies of easy virtue. King had helped Labour win the 45 election. They served up a diet of sex. The Archbishop of Canterbury was concerned about the press and called for respect for privacy the general council of the press funded by the newspapers in order to avoid statutory regulations. Macmillan thought both King and Cudlip were awful, but the politician that he was, he was shrewd enough to wine and dine them. King, despite riling at the Tories at their grouse shooting, owned a, a shooting estate in Aberdeenshire. Lord King was seriously unfaithful to his wife, but gracious enough to warn her that he did not intend to be faithful. He aimed at 12 affairs a year. Not surprisingly, his wife lurched into depression. The reason I'm going into this to show you the, the hypocrisy of the press, as they're stirring up all this other stuff. In 1959, he started an affair with a lady called Ruth Railton, 
who was the founder of the National Youth Orchestra. She was a slightly strange, neurotic woman. Cudlip was of the same ilk. Before marrying his wife, he'd had an affair with her. After the, her divorce, they, they married, and there was adultery on both sides. If you wanted to get on in Cudlip's organisation, and you were an employee of him, you let your wife sleep with him. He had an affair with this lady, Judy Highland, and soon after this, his wife died from drug overdose. It was suspected to be suicide. He drank copiously. The Mirror Group were plotting for a Labour victory and thought the best way to achieve this was to attack the restricted ruling clique, an upper crust of polite and discreet intellectuals belonging to the same class and clubs, marrying the same sort of women and producing the same sort of children. So that's the press. Landlords. The majority of London in 1945 was shabby, full of bomb sites and houses in poor repair. After about 1957, a change began to occur. There was a dash for modernity. This was the time of the property developers, Charles Claw, Harry Hyams, Walter Flack, Max Rain, and Jack Cotton. They were ruthless men, not public school educated. The town and country Planning Act of 1947 had introduced a, a much more formal system of rent re regulation. But when Macmillan was appointed Minister of Housing in 1951, he relaxed some controls in 1954, which encouraged a building boom until 1964, when Labour came back to power, they reintroduced controls. Retail was, was changing too. Chains of shops were beginning to appear. However, the most small-time property man who became the most famous was Petrik Rachman, a Polish-born Jew. He managed to survive the war and arrived in Britain in 1946. He scratched a living. His office was a telephone box. A user of prostitutes once suggested he set up a letting agency, and this was the scam he used to do. He would rent a room for five pounds and then let it to prostitutes who paid him rent as well, and he made a profit. He started buying flats, helped by shady property men, and houses where long leases were expiring. They were often in a poor state of repair and rents were fixed at 1939 levels. The landlords wanted to sell and Rackman bought and then sublet at high rents he got the tenants who were on fixed rates out by violence, if necessary. Another thing he did, and he was a strange man in some respects, he let to black people who were often excluded on racial grounds. The Racial Relations Act wasn't passed until 1965. However, he was frequently taken to rent tribunals. He never bothered to defend the cases because he knew he was going to lose. It's true to say that he was, in fact, gradually becoming a slightly more legitimate. In 1959, he acquired a hideaway in Branston Mews, and then he installed a 17-year-old Christine Keeler, more of her later, and he slept with her most afternoons. She's later said, sex to Peter Rackman was like cleaning his teeth, and I was his toothpaste. 
the only memorable statement she's ever known to have made. He visited Stephen Ward's cottage by the Thames once. However, he died in November 1962, having had a massive stroke, but his name was pilloried, and Rachmanism was thrust in the press as being another stick to beat the Tories with. Rent regulation had interfered with the market, but there we are. So we mentioned Christine Keeler. Let's now turn to the ladies. Central to the tale are Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis. Christine Keeler was born in 1942, lived in Raysbury near Staines in poverty with her mother and stepfather. I think it's true to say that her life began to change at puberty. Men took a somewhat times unhealthy interest. After an overture from her stepfather, she had kept a stepknife under her pillow. At school, she was named Sabrina. I think we remember Sabrina was a model, I think, at the time. At 15, she got a job in London at a gowns showroom. She was pestered by her boss and left. She became a waitress, got her photo in Titbits. You remember that publication in 1958? She got involved with black American from Staines and Ghanaian. She also had a messy abortion. At the time, there were sex establishments about. Paul Raymond was setting up a programme of a show, had this footnote at the end. In the interests of public health, this theatre is disinfectant throughout with Jay's fluid. Keeler's break came at an old-fashioned established sex establishment called Murray's. Now, interestingly enough, Murray's costumes were all made in the leafy suburbs of Surrey in Chert, he had a house there and, and all the costumes were made in churn. Christine Keeler was one of the near naked girls in background on stage, as they did in the windmill. She met Stephen Ward there and went to live in his Bayswater flat. Sex was not involved, but he just wanted the company of pretty girls. Another such girl was Mandy Rice Davis, the daughter of an ex-policeman. She had an easier start in Solihull. At 16, working in the China Department of Marshall and Snellgrove in Birmingham, and then she was spotted and took part in a fashion show there and was noticed. She then went on to the motor show. and She got a job at Murray's and met Christine Keeler, and they then got a flat together in Barron's Court. Their income was practically nil. They had very little money and waited for men they had met to take them out to dinner. The men paid the bills and the girls knew what was respected of them in return. There is no evidence, real evidence, that they were, in fact, prostitutes living on earnings from sex. They were portrayed as prostitutes at the height of the affair. Mandy Rice Davis met Rackman at the Savoy restaurant. They got on and she became his mistress and was installed in Branston Mews. Mandy Rice Davis, in contrast to Christine Keeler, was bright, ambitious, and later married an Israeli and went to live in Israel and opened clubs. She was a very good businessman. Christine Keeler, whose life didn't treat so well after her fall from grace, 
very much resented the success of Mandy Rice Davis. A little postscript about women at this stage. It was called the Mammary Age. Contraception was still at a basic stage. A woman's caesarean was delayed until her husband gave consent. The pill had yet to arrive. Women were not allowed into the House of Lords until 1958, and the Abortion Act was not passed until 1969. Let us come on to the Profumo affair as such. In 1961, Ward was down at Spring Cottage at Cliveden. Bill Astor was there, and they were both holding weekend parties. Ivanov, who got to know Ward, was there, as was Christine Keeler and some young Chelsea swingers. MI5, who were aware that Ivanov was not really a naval attache, had already warned Ward about Ivanov. Among Bill Astor's guests was Profumo, and on Sunday evening they went for a stroll and came to the swimming pool to find Christine Keeler cavorting round the pool, just having removed her top of her bikini. Astor invited them to the house. Ivanov took Christine Keeler back to London, where she alleged, much later, they slept together. What Christine Keeler alleges, and the truth is not always the same thing. By this time, she was already being paid for stories by the press. Profumo had noticed Christine Keeler and he contacted her, and they slept together on a number of occasions. He gave her small presents and 20 pounds for her mother. He also gave her the scent his wife used. I understand a word of advice for any gentleman who are about to set off on having affairs. It's a good idea that you make sure that your mistress and your wife have the same scent. Profumo was later to say she was a very beautiful girl who seemed to like sexual intercourse. Profumo's wife told their son he thought he could get away with it. After all, most of his friends did. And he wrote her a number of notes calling her darling, which Christine Keeler did not destroy. All the time this had started up, Ivanov was reckoned to be a spy. This was the time of the Cold War. And Perfumo was having a relationship with Christine Keeler. She had allegedly slept with Ivanov. Well, as a Minister of Defence, this is not perhaps a good thing. Now, the Cabinet Secretary called Perfumo in and they said that they were worried about Stephen Ward and his connections with Ivanov. Keeler was living at Ward's flat at the time. Perfumo thought they might know of his affair, but they didn't, in fact. He claimed he stopped seeing her after this warning, but they may have met again. At this time, Christine Keeler met Lucky Gordon at a club in Notting Hill. She met another Antiguan, Johnny Edgecombe. He was a pimp, did pimping, and had a criminal record, and she lived briefly with him. So you can see the sleaze is, is going on. There were rumblings in discontent in the Tory party. Was Macmillan past his sell-by date? Perhaps we remember the light of the long knives it showed Macmillan could be a ruthless politician. But was it desperation? 
I think I've made it clear that Ward loved to gossip and was full of his own self-importance. And he tended to play up his friendship with Ivanov and his dealings with MI5. He wanted to be an intermediary between MI5 and, and Ivanov, but MI5s were unimpressed. This was the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a great deal of suspicion of the Soviets. In October 1962, Mandy Rice Davis was 18 and Rackman gave her a £1,000 in cash, but he was pretty miserable and she went to live with Ward. Afterwards, Rackman had a massive stroke and died. A considerable catalyst to the whole affair happened when Keeler was visiting Mandy Rice Davis at Ward's flat. Johnny Edgecombe, who I mentioned earlier, had arrived and claimed that Keeler was sleeping with uh, Lassius Gordon. Mandy Rice Davis said that Keeler was not there. Edgecombe fired at the lock and Mandy Rice Davis, who was at the window, he then tried to climb a drain pipe. He dropped the gun and fled. Christine Keeler told the police it was her gun. Edgecombe was arrested and charged with attempted murder. The time Christine Keeler was heavily using cannabis and she was losing her hold on reality. At a party, she talked of the gunshots, her relationships with Stephen Ward and Profumo, and she told Paul Mann, who was an unscrupulous businessman. Also present was Paul Lewis, the former Labour MP, with a hatred of Ward. Neither could keep or wanted to keep the secret. Mann started talking to journalists, and Lewis spoke to the Labour MP, George Whig. He was slippery, vindictive, and a dislike of the officers and other rank system. He'd reached the rank of colonel in the Education Corps in the Second World War. He was, however, a genuine champion of the rights of ordinary soldiers, and he disliked the way that Profumo had dealt with plaints soldiers had made about their living conditions. He was therefore vindictive and out to get Profumo. Man with this grudge took Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis to see the Sunday Mirror to sell their stories. She had with her one of Profumo's letters in her bag. They offered her a thousand pounds, and what they were seeking was a link between Profumo and Ivanov, the spy, and sex. She then tried to sell her story to the news of the world. A journalist then approached Ward who, shocked, told Lord Astor that the press was getting on to the stories. He consulted a barrister. Astor then told Profumo, who asked to see MI5. Ward then rang the Sunday pectoral and said the story was untrue and threatened libel. The police then saw Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis about shooting. She was furious because Ward had stopped giving her money. As a result of this, she alleged that war procured for men in high places. Police thought the story preposterous and decided to do nothing. It was a pack of lies. But the story is hotting up. The Solicitor General was consulted about Profumo committing adultery, and he denied this adultery and said he would sue any paper that printed. They gave Profumo the benefit of doubt. The Prime Minister was briefed about the stories going around Fleet Street about Profumo and his connection with Ivanov. 
George Wig continued to stir the pot at a dinner party attended by Harold Wilson, Barbara Castle, Michael Foote, Crossman and Wig, they decided that even if the story was true, it should be left alone. Christine Keeler was supposed to attend to give evidence at the Edgecombe trial, but she failed to turn up because Paul Mann took her to Spain because he did not want her story told all and sundry. The Daily Express then printed a story that Profumo had offered to resign, which was true. Beside the story, by way of coincidence, of course, was a picture of Creela. Christine vanished, Old Bailey witness. Beaverbrook was out for revenge and wanted to portray Astor as a libertine. Naturally, Beaverbrook himself was an adulterer. So you can see this quite complicated story that it's, the plot is thickening. The press were very vindictive about the vassal case and the journalist being in prison. The press began to name politicians and raise questions about Profumo, who they didn't name. After the debate, Profumo was called from his bed. He denied anything to do with Christine Keeler. And 11 a.m. the next day, he made his statement in Parliament. He was believed. The press, however, still kept digging away. Keeler's mother was visited by the press and Mandy Rice Davis interviewed. She alleged she had slept with Lord Astor. Subsequently, when questioned in court about this, she famously retorted, well, he would, wouldn't he? Mr. Wig was still stirring things up. But the real problem was Ward, who kept on telling stories about what was going on. He saw Wig and told stories to Wig. At the time, the Home Secretary was a religious bigot by the name of Sir Henry Brooke. He was utterly inept. He was shocked and wondered whether Ward could be charged with some sexual offence. There was little evidence of a breach of the Official Secrets Act. The police started to question Keeler about the men she had slept with. She mentioned Sir Charles Claw, but the police investigation was corrupt. They interviewed Lord Astor, who admitted once paying the rent on Keeler and Mandy Rice David's Barons Court flat. There was then a fight at Christine Keeler's flat and she was beaten up. There was then a question of trying to frame her and the police said that if Lucky Gordon, who was in trouble, would say that Ward was procuring young girls, they would drop any charges against him. He refused to do this and was actually charged. Police then framed Mandy Rice Davis about a television, which they accused her of stealing. It was a totally tramped up charge, but they dropped this after she testified against Ward. So in other words, she was charged falsely. This is complicated. And then the police dropped the charge if she gave false evidence against Ward. The next thing the police did was to get two genuine prostitutes and said if they would never work again unless they said that Ward was a pimp. Completely untrue. The police found no criminal activity but started interviewing his female patients. Now, of course, Ward loved being part of the powerful and the influential. And the word suddenly started going around his patients that Ward was engaged in nefarious activities. 
he was distraught. He went to see someone at the prime minister's office. He said there was a lot of explosive material. He later went to the home secretary and said that Profumo was lying. High level meetings took place. Was Ward a security risk or a spy as Harold Wilson was alleging? The game was up. Profumo was summoned and resigned forthwith. The summer was a terrible time for the government. The knives were out for, for the establishment. Ward's case was initially sub judice, and much was made of Rackman's harassment of tenants. Ward was arrested and charged with living on the earnings of prostitution. The next day, the Sunday Mirror published the Confessions of Christine, a pack of lies she received 24,000. Macmillan was criticised for his mishandling of the fair. Lord Hailsham had a rant and a debate in Parliament went badly. Police went to Cliveden and told Bill Astor they were collecting evidence to charge him with running a brothel at Spring Cottage. He was cut dead at Ascot. The press tore into the establishment, and as Ward prepared for his trial, all his friends deserted him. One witness was frightened off by the police. Bill Astor's lawyers told him not to appear. Then the next thing that happened was the Philby case broke out and the old boy network was crucified. Macmillan's world was falling apart. On the 22nd of July, the case began. Mervyn Griffith-Jones, the prosecutor, was merciless and totally unscrupulous. He made allegations about matters for which Ward was not charged. Charles Claw and Emil Savundra, an insurance scam, you remember him, was mentioned but not called. In the trial, Christine Keeler lied about her previous statement she'd made in a court case and denied that the two witnesses were there. They were subsequently found and Gordon re released. He'd been stitched up. The judge summing up was biased and he said Keeler and Rice Davis came within a loose definition of prostitutes. Ward, awaiting the verdict, went to the flat where he was staying and took an overdose of barbiturates. The next day, in his absence, he was found guilty of lesser charges, but before he could be sentenced, he was dead. Christine Keeler was found guilty of perjury in the Gordon case and sent to prison for nine months. The police had told her to lie. That's the ironic thing. Immediately after the Ward trial ended, Lord Brevet Book sent a reporter to Cliveden. The report said, lots of visitors today, but no guests, he reported. The Fumo affair did more harm to Macmillan and the Conservative government than anything else in his administration. It was the death knell for confidence in traditional hierarchy authority. Lord Denning produced a scurrilous and malicious and hypocritical report castigating Ward, and the strain of this didn't help Macmillan, who was admitted to hospital with a prostate complaint. He thought he was more ill than he was. Under the influence of medication, he made a rush decision to resign, and Sir Alec Douglas Hume was voted in as successor. Shortly afterwards, I think if General de Gaulle in France had a similar prostate complaint, had an operation and was back in office in no time at all. 
I think that it's arguable that without the Profumo affair and the resignation of Millen, the Tories might have scraped the 64 election. They lost it by four votes. Had the Tories won the election, Mrs. Wilson would have divorced Harold. I have it on good authority. I was training as a solicitor in London and the barristers' chambers we knew were dealing with a divorce for Mrs. Wilson. The papers were all ready to serve on Harold Wilson because of his adultery with Lady Faulkner. When Harold Wilson won the election, she said, don't proceed with the divorce petition. I suspect that um, if he'd been divorced, he would have probably been forced to resign. The real tragedy in this affair was Ward. Lech, Lowndes, Lizard, call him what you may, was totally innocent. He was victimised by politicians, framed by policemen, deserted by patients, betrayed by girlfriends, reviled by lawyers and smeared by Lord Denning. Lord Astor was destroyed and died in Italy not long after. Christine Keeler ended up a rather mis- poor, miserable woman. Mandy Rice Davis, as I said, prospered in Israel. The Profumo affair exposed the goings-on of the establishment. The hypocrisy of those involved is extraordinary, to say the least. Sadly, little has changed. The press, as we are only too aware and unscrupulous in their pursuit of stories, politicians' sexual behaviour is just the same. Plus ça change, ça change. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.